Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our author, Luis G. Cueva, has written a book titled Forsaken Harvest, Haciendas and Agrarian Reform in Jalisco, Mexico, 1915-1940. And Luis joins me from California today. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you very much. This is an extensive work, uh, over 500 pages. Why did you feel compelled to tell this story of the agrarian culture in Mexico, and especially in the Jalisco area? Well, it's really the story, as it says in the uh, uh, beginning of the book, it's the story of my parents, my mother and my father were from a little village town in Jalisco, and it's the story of their generation. And Jalisco is a very important state in Mexico. It's the state where the uh, tequila comes from. There's a little town actually called Tequila. Mm-hmm. And so all of the, the liquor that comes from Mexico is uh, from the state of Jalisco. So that's kind of an interesting little tidbit. But also uh, it's where the mariachi music, which is the big bands with the violins and the trumpets, all of that originated in Jalisco. It's a very colorful culture. And uh, so that's part of the reason I chose uh, this particular region. Uh, President Lazaro Cardenas was the uh, president of Mexico during the, what, 1935 to 40. Was that a time when your parents were also in Jalisco? Yes, they were basically adolescents at that time. Uh, They were uh, under a a very difficult time period in Mexican history. uh, There was a very uh, destructive, bloody civil war that uh, it was a religious civil war, not too different from what we see in the Middle East today, uh, except it was almost, I would refer to it as a Christian jihad, kind of a holy war against the government, and that occurred from 1926 to 1929. Actually, my father's father, my grandfather, Vicente, was one of the main rebel generals against the government, and the people suffered enormously in the region because of the uh, military confrontations that were taking place. And that combined right immediately afterwards with the Great Depression, the Global Depression of 1929, led to very difficult conditions and uh, widespread uh, famine, hunger, malnutrition in the region and other parts of Mexico, which was known as Los Tiempos de Hambre, the Times of Hunger. And so that was a big uh, part of uh, why I uh, chose to look into this time period. President Cardenas, what influence did he have during that time frame, and why is he important to your story? 
President Cárdenas was a military general during the Mexican Revolution of 1910, and he was a populist, he was a progressive, he was very uh, concerned about the poor people, unlike many other politicians. So he was really a hero, probably the greatest uh, a political leader that Latin America has ever produced. Uh, some Americans don't like him because he nationalized the uh, petroleum industry, took the properties belonging to the Rockefeller family, Standard Oil of California, uh, Shell, and other uh, 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 petroleum companies and nationalized them. And today that nationalized company is known as Pemex, uh, the Mexican national petroleum industry. Uh, so that was a major uh, achievement for the country of Mexico. And uh, his other great achievement for President Cardenas was the, what's referred to as the Great Land Reform, which is what this book is about. And basically, uh, again, some Americans don't like this because it's redistribution of land, taking the land from the big, uh, wealthy hacienda property owners, the very wealthy families, very powerful, that had dominated Mexico for over 300 years. And their system of land ownership was basically holding Mexico back uh, economically. They, they uh, were... Uh, impeding the growth of a market economy. They were impeding the growth of the capitalist system. So even though he was kind of a revolutionary, kind of a radical President Cardenas, what he was really doing was trying to develop the, the capitalist economy, the market economy in Mexico. Over 500 pages, uh, well-researched. You have many footnotes, many uh, photos and sketches in your book. Why did you set out to do this? Uh, besides referring to your family history, was there a, a deeper message that you're trying to convey? Yes, uh, there was, actually, because uh, when I was in the university in graduate school, this was a topic that I chose uh, for my dissertation, uh, which I completed in 1994. And uh, I had come to realize at that time that there was a school, an academic school, of uh, revisionist historians, uh, many of them American historians, who were very critical of the reforms that President Cardenas undertook during this time period. And uh, so they were kind of at odds with what my whole idea of what happened during this uh, era. So I kind of set out to prove them wrong. Not everything that this revisionist school says is incorrect. They have have good reasons for a lot of their, uh, uh, you know, uh, criticisms of President Cardenas, but in some areas of Mexico, such as Jalisco, the reforms that he implemented were very uh, well designed, very uh, forward looking, and that's part of the the reason uh, the book is important today is because these reforms that he implemented 70 years ago really can serve as a model of uh, economic development, uh, agricultural economic development in the poor third world underdeveloped countries of the world. And uh, so basically what he was doing, he set up a system of uh, based on agricultural cooperatives, what we would refer to as a pro-small 
farmer model, uh, a system of development that favors the, the poor people, the, the peasants, uh, small uh, farmers, small agricultural producers. Uh, and uh, he did this through the establishment of uh, cooperatives. And uh, another thing that Americans don't look too friendly upon would be that he established uh, strict market controls over the production, distribution, and prices for agricultural consumer goods. So this is kind of the revolutionary aspect of uh, his policies, but it was intended really to give a chance for the small farmers to be successful within the capitalist economic system, to give them a system that would allow them to not only raise their crops, but also to be able to sell a portion of those crops in the market at prices that would allow them to be uh, small entrepreneurs, uh, small successful farmers. Your project, Forsaken Harvest, uh, was a lengthy process, nearly 27 years. Share with my audience why it took 27 years and who you hope to reach with your writing. Uh, It took 27 years because, like you said, I'm a slow writer, but, you know, I was talking to my mentor in college a few weeks ago, and I presented him a copy of the book, and uh, he's doing the same thing. He's working on a project right now that uh, is taking him over 20 years, and he's, like, uh, concerned that his wife is getting tired of him, you know, going down to Mexico and doing this research. Uh, but I told him, you know, well, sometimes when you produce a quality piece of literature, sometimes it takes, you know, decades to, to do that. It's not an easy thing. And uh, uh, But uh, in 1986, I transitioned from the master's program at the University of California, San Diego, to the, in the history department, and I transitioned from the master's program to the Ph.D., program, and uh, I had to come up with a a topic for my dissertation, and I was always very interested in agrarian studies, uh, you know, peasant populations of poor people around the world. Most of the people in the in the world today are uh, uh, considered peasant populations. Those are the poor people. And uh, so it was something that I was very interested in, and uh, that's what, uh, the, you know, motivated me. And uh, it was kind of by accident that I came across these reforms that President Cardenas implemented, and uh, as I said before, these can uh, serve as a model for economic economic uh, growth development today in these poor, underdeveloped countries. So that's kind of why the book is important. Is this a book that's going to be embraced more by uh, the scholastic folks, the people who, who love detail, love history, and, and love uh, uh, an intense read, or is this going to reach also a wider audience, do you think? Well, I think it's interesting. There's, you know, I've revised this, uh, the chapters so many times, you know, hundreds and hundreds of revisions and going over it back and forth. And But I've always found it to be the material is very interesting. It's kind of exciting material. Not everything. Some of it's a little bit boring because it's, you know, about land and agriculture. But there's some interesting stuff in this book. And uh, 
the, uh, you know, when I finally finished uh, publishing the book, when I finally finished the manuscript and turned it over to Ex Libris for publication, I started thinking to myself, well, who's really going to want to read this old boring history like this, Mexican history? And uh, so I started thinking more and more about it, and I got on the Internet, and I started looking up these humanitarian relief organizations around the world, and also another group that are related to them, which is the international development agencies, many of them connected to organizations like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. And so I made a huge list of all of these different agencies and uh, humanitarian relief groups and started sending them, uh, you know, uh, some information about the book. And uh, I've sent uh, copies uh, of the book to some very highly placed individuals within this whole movement uh, of, uh, you know, the fight to end global hunger. And the response that I've gotten so far has been really excellent. Uh, People are very interested in what I have to say because these agencies are in the process right now of looking for a model of economic development that is, as I mentioned before, a pro-small farmer uh, friendly that's going to allow the poor people to uh, to be able to participate within the capitalist system. And uh, ever since 2008, when the global economy went into recession, and you started having food riots in other parts of the world, including the uh, the uh, Arab Spring in the Middle East. Uh, these agencies have had kind of a change of heart, and uh, they've kind of uh, turned around their thinking more in favor of what my book says, which is that you're never going to end the problem of global hunger unless you come up with a uh, uh, this uh, so-called uh, pro-small farmer model that allows the poor people to be successful, to feed themselves, to feed their families, and at the same time be able to come up with a little bit of surplus cash so that they can, you know, enjoy the benefits of the market economy. You've included some uh, personal, not personal tales, but some uh, personal accounts of uh, people of that era, some of the challenges they went through. Which of the chapters do you think is going to stand out to the reader and uh, engage them? One of the most interesting chapters, the kind of uh, dramatic chapters, would be the uh, fifth chapter, which has to do with how the landowners used political repression against the poor people. Uh, The poor people were applying to the government to get land uh, resources, and uh, obviously the large landowners, the hacendados, the owners of the big hacienda estates, they didn't want to give up their land. And, and so they resorted to very uh, brutal forms of political repression and murders, assassinations, uh, picking out leaders of uh, the, the various groups that were applying for land and having them knocked off, uh, death squads, uh, uh, decapitations and, uh, you know, dismemberment of bodies. It was very, you know, very nasty uh, stuff that they, uh, even though these families were, you know, very illustrious families and uh, some of the most, uh, you know, educated people in Mexico, but when it came to protecting their private property, they could become very brutal. Mm. 
Well, this must have been very challenging to write 500 and some pages, plus the research that went into it. Forsaken Harvest is the name. It's the Haciendas and Agrarian Reforms in Jalisco, Mexico, 1915 to 1940. Luis, where do we get copies of this book? Well, I do have a, a website for the book. It's uh, the go to forsakenharvest.com. Uh, so that's all one word, forsakenharvest.com, and that's the website for the book. And then there's a section there where it says, you know, buy the book, and that will link you directly to the Ex Libris online uh, bookstore. And you can purchase. It comes in either the hard uh, hardback copy, which is something like $34, the paperback, which is... Uh, Twenty some dollars, and also very good is the ebook copy, which is applicable to like uh, uh, Kindle and Nook and iPads, I believe. So you can get an ebook copy for like under nine dollars, and I think for people who have access to Kindle and Nook, that that would be the best way to go. But it's a very beautiful book because the co- the cover, uh, a friend of mine from college, is a really wonderful artist. He did a beautiful cover to the book and also there's these ink illustrations at the beginning of each chapter that are just beautiful pieces of uh, of art. One of them I truly believe is a, is a artistic masterpiece on the level of uh, a Picasso or uh, Diego Rivera and uh, so these uh, uh, the art in the book is is worth the price you pay in it just by itself. Wonderfully done. Author Luis G. Cueva. The title of the book, Forsaken Harvest, Haciendas and Agrarian Reforms in Jalisco, Mexico, 1915-1940. Thank you, Luis, for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book has a dire prediction and a warning, perhaps, titled The Last Election, an American prophecy. And our author who joins me from northern Michigan is James Glenn Reynolds. Welcome, sir, to the program. 
Thank you. Glad to be here. Why did you get interested in politics, which I am assuming this book contains a lot of that information, 181 pages? What compelled you to write this? Well, I'm alarmed about the direction of our country, and I believe we're headed for a last election like we did in, 19, uh, in 1860 because uh, we are hopelessly divided in two ways of life, uh, not dissimilar from the way we were divided uh, a century and a half ago, and I'm seeing alarming uh, contrasts to... Uh, and similarities to that time and decided in my uh, uh, later years before I uh, get to the point where I'm not that productive, I'm going to write this book because it's amazing to me that we are not having a conversation about what the end is for our uh, hopeless political division. And there is an end, and it can be not, it's not, not pretty, and we ought to be talking about it, and nobody's talking about it. You have a background in, uh, in commerce, in business. Uh, as a writer, is this your first book? Yes, it's my first book, and it may be my only book, unless, uh, unless I hit a chord. And the reason I wrote it is I'm thinking that tens of millions of my fellow Americans are thinking the same doggone thing that I'm thinking, which is, where is this all leading? We are going to break up again. We can't get along. So, so I decided to, to, to you know, pe- maybe people all over the country, ordinary folks, this is not written for intellectuals. It's written in plain uh, language with lots of facts uh, because I did my research. So that if you're sitting in a drugstore in Iowa or Missouri or uh, Tennessee and, you, and you're thinking this stuff, talking around uh, maybe the breakfast table, and you read this book and you say, gee, I'm not the only one thinking this. Here's a man who, who thought about it hard and wrote about it, and maybe as Americans we ought to be talking about it. Your cover shows four different distinct countries. From my understanding of an American prophecy, the last election, are you suggesting that perhaps the United States could break up into four distinct different countries? Yes, it could break up into one or uh, two or more, and I'm not sure. The the uh, uh, we're a very different people, and we had a common thread for many many years. So over a hundred years, we had a common thread after the Civil War of of building this empire, going to work, accepting immigrants, and and but we were very different people with this common thread. But the common thread bound us together, and I do write about that in the book. And and if, if we lose this common thread, which I think we're, we've lost it, and I think we're losing our empire. And I think we are going to be crushed by our overwhelming debt and the promises we made to ourselves and and, um, and this huge central authority that's trying to make one rule for all. When this all happens, we're, we're, we're probably going to break up into, into sections of the country where we have more things in common. And the people in Dixie, for example, in the South have a lot, have, have more of a culture in common. The people in the, in the, in the South, you know, breadbasket area, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, they have things more in common with Dixie. So I'm thinking that whereas the, the, the people who live in the great basin of the Wyoming and Dakotas and uh, uh, which uh, Joel Garreau in a book called The Empty Quarter, they may have things more in common uh, and less in common with Dixie and less in common with the Northeast. So I'm just thinking, and then there's uh, the, what we call Ecotopia out on the West Coast, which is a whole different world. We all know about that. Hmm. So I, I, I'm thinking this is all possible. Um, and it, it might not be a bad way to uh, to try to get along in this continent. At least we ought to be having a conversation about it. 
central authority is a major issue. How do we correct what's going on? I don't know that we can. You know, capitalism is, has what we call creative destruction. Uh, when, when, we, when, when tools or devices or ways of doing things uh, outlive one another, they get destroyed and new things get created. And we do not know how to control the, this central authority that we've created. We've created it slowly over about 80 years uh, with uh, three or four accelerations in the 60s and then uh, now very recently with the health care law. Um, uh, but we do not know how to 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 establish it and maintain it. It keeps growing, and we can't. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican or whatever your political persuasion. You can, we we have we don't know how to control it. So so it may be that we have to um, shrink it by separation, so that societies can can rebuild and start new institutions and rebuild them more to their suiting. Do you have any personal concerns about perhaps a strong leader taking over and establishing a typical third world dictatorship in the United States? You know, I don't, I don't know about that. I'm not as worried about that, except the central authority we've seen now. We saw this in Ferguson, uh, Missouri, over the weekend, that the police, the, the, the local police, not just the federal government, now have essentially an, an incredibly uh, strong military capabilities that's been provided by the federal government and SWAT teams and, and uh, vehicles that are armored. And, uh, and it looks like uh, governments are gearing up for, to suppress civil, civil uh, uh, unrest. And this is a little scary. I, I think that our, in a way we, we are in a dictatorship of the institutions because the Congress can't control it. We see that now. And we can't control the growth of it. So we may have created kind of a monster that, that, uh, that doesn't have a We don't identify with a single person like a dictator, but it's certainly uh, something we can't control. Many of the electorate are not well-informed either, and that has me concerned. Um, How do you address those concerns in your book? You know, I I don't... uh, I think that the people... Historically, 80% of the people get up and go to work every day and just want to want to live with their families and live in peace right. and, and mind their own business. So it's, it, it's not unusual that the public's not that informed about this. The, the, we, we, we do rely on our, on our leaders for this, but our leaders right now um, are not going to rock the boat. The elites and, uh, and, and even the, the responsible business leaders in the regions have way too much much, uh, to lose from this, but they will respond when something happens and the central authority overreaches to the common person, and the common person is 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 pushed to an extent in their home, I think. It could be the home of their factory or their farm, but at their home where they're pushed too far, they're going to rebel. And that I don't know where that's going to occur, but that's going to happen. And when that happens, because the central authority can't resist more and more power and more control, when that happens, then I think the leaders in the regions will respond and support their people. And then, then, then I think we'll have a separation. How long did it take you, Jim, to complete this work, 181 pages? Well, I wrote it intensely uh, over a year and a half period. I started right after the 2012 election, and I, I worked hard on it for about 18 months. But I've been thinking about this. I have boxes 
of news clippings, books. Uh, I've been thinking about my nation for 50 years. I ran for federal office once in 1978 when I was alarmed over stagflation and the and the Great Society regulations and the loss of the Vietnam War and the Nixon behavior. You know, I, I, I decided I had to stand up then. And then I uh, used up all my money, so I went back to work and earned a livelihood. And now I'm 70. When I was 70 years old, I decided, you know, I'm going to do this now. So it took me a year and a half, did all the research myself. But it's well documented, and uh, and it's and it's written in plain English language, Jay. So a- any person should feel they can pick up this book, and it's an easy read. It's a fast read. I wrote it in big type, not too many tables. It's not a tome. It is well footnoted. Um, and documented from, uh, I quote, historians and economists and journalists who are res- widely respected and uh, from all political persuasions. So I, I think it's, I- I'd like my fellow citizens to be thinking about how we have a conversation where we can get along on this continent instead of the, the rancorous debate we have now trying to-, trying to see who can control this monster we've created in Washington. You've created a cautionary tale. Is there any other underlying message other than we're headed for trouble? Well, the underlying message is human freedom versus human bondage. Hmm. And freedom is not easy and it's not without cost. And if we're going to remain free and we're going to remain free for our children, then we're going to have to figure out uh, how to control the monsters that we've created, and uh, it's 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 going to it's it's our job to do. We created them. We're going to have to control them. And the most important thing is, in my view, is human freedom. Now, freedom's relative. Human freedom means different things to different people, and we have a majority of people who would like to be free from risks, and they would like to be free from uh, from the obligations of life or the vicissitudes of life, and they want care, and they want care from a big government, and they don't care if it's a large central authority. But there are a lot of people in over half the land mass of this country who want the freedom to live an unrestricted, relatively unrestricted life and came to this continent for that reason. And to, if we're going to preserve that and not allow ourselves to be drawn into human bondage, we're going to have to uh, find a pathway. In a couple of paragraphs, share with my audience the reasons they need to be concerned about what your book predicts and also why they should get a copy of the last election. Well, we're going to become impoverished as a people, not the elites, because they'll control the whole process. But the rest of us, the middle class and the poor, we're going to be impoverished because we have made way too many demands on our nation that our nation cannot supply. So we have these unfulfilled promises and we have lots of needy people. This is not going to end well if we don't get a hold of ourselves in the next few years. And so and it's going to affect every single American uh when it when when it comes to pass. So I think to to the reason to read the book is 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 to to begin to think about how you and your neighbors and your communities might be having a conversation about how we might get along. I'm, I don't think there's a right and wrong here, there is, but there are enormous differences. And in in the 1850s, there was a big right and wrong between slavery and and freedom. 
But today, there's not a huge right and wrong between wanting a large central government to take care of you or wanting to have the freedom to take care of yourself. It's just very different. And I think we need to be having a conversation how we can go forward together, because otherwise we're going to be uh, end up in, in, uh, in great civil unrest and what I would describe as a very bad patch. And this could happen while almost all of us are yet alive. It's going to happen sooner rather than later. I believe you have uh, touched on an important topic. Uh, this is more than just a uh, an alarmist tale that you are, are sharing. I believe it has some good rational thought behind it. Are there other books that maybe lean in the same direction that you have uh, taken? Well, Neil Ferguson, a, an eminent historian, uh, wrote wrote the book Civilization uh, recently, uh, and 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 he inspired that that book inspired me in part because he described the rise of the West and what how it was different, and how we are now degenerating as a civilization, and then he wrote uh, a book very right after that called The Great Degeneration. Um, Fergus Borgowitz, uh, a historian, wrote the book America's Great Debate, which was um, about the debates of 1850 when Americans, the, the great lions of the Senate, were trying to figure out how they could make peace, and they couldn't do it. And even as hard as they tried, they couldn't do it because we had fundamental disagreements. And Borgowitz even has a wistful comment. I don't know if it's in his preface or in his epilogue about about maybe people today ought to be reading about those times to, to think about... Um, the, the comparisons, and that inspired me too. Because when I read that book and I thought about today, that I, uh, I thought, gee, Wilkers, why isn't anybody talking about it? But the reason there's not much talk about it is that the politicians, this is this is not the politicians are so close to the forest. You know, they 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 can't see the forest for the trees. They're in the trees. And this is what we do for a living, okay? So they're not going to say, let's, let's, let's break up the country. The elitists are making tons of money controlling the central authority. It's now the biggest, the, the biggest customer there is. And the pundits, the, 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 all the people in the media, they're making a tremendous amount of money on our division. So, you know, nobody has a big incentive to talk about this, and that's why maybe a nobody has to come from somewhere and say, hey, Americans, let's, let's have a conversation. This is a thoughtful and uh, very provocative book on many levels, one that I think uh, most everyone in my audience, in fact, everyone in my audience, audience should be getting a copy of. The title, again, is The Last Election, An American Prophecy, and our author, James Glenn Reynolds. Jim, where do we get copies? of your book uh, amazon.com amazon has it and uh, barnes and nobles has, has it uh, and uh, you can google uh, the last election and american prophecy be sure to google the whole thing if you just get on online uh, the last election and american prophecy and it'll all come up uh, but amazon and barnes and noble are the place to get it right now Thank you, Jim, for sharing your passion and sharing the background story of the last election in American prophecy. Are you planning a follow-up book to this one? Only if this catches on. If this catches on and I, I hit a chord, uh, then, then I may write uh, the how-to. 
but I need a staff for that. I need a couple of terrific intellectuals, one in uh, with Federal Reserve experience and one uh, uh, particularly brilliant uh, legal mind that I've got in my head from the – originally I, I met at the University of Chicago Law School when I was there uh, on, uh, on writing a constitution. But, I, but I'm not writing about that because it's not my place right now. I would do it as a service if this book really caught on. If not, I will probably um, uh, uh, just uh, win my way into retirement. <laughs> Thank you for sharing this book. This is an important topic, and I think you've addressed it well. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Jay. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Grid Scan Beginnings, and the author is Natsuya Uesugi. And Natsuya joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, this is a story of hackers. It's a story of psychics. As you put it, Gridscan is a high-octane sci-fi adventure epic about two brothers on opposite sides of a war. So uh, we've got a lot going on here because there's been a nuclear war and there's some people beginning to show psychic power. And And before we get into all the details, though, Natsuya, tell us a little bit about your background and how this book came about. So, my parents were computer programmers, so I grew up with computers my entire life, and after I graduated from college, I ended up working in information technology, and I am a systems analyst and a software engineer. I've worked in many companies. Uh, designing software requirements, working with developers, and uh, I've designed aerospace, financial, and semiconductor systems. So pretty much anything high-tech, and uh, I'm a programmer too. So that's kind of where the technology is coming from in the book. So the idea for the book? 
the idea from the book for the book came about, you know, I have always been fascinated with uh, hacking and hackers and developers, and that's who I work with. And so, you know, I used to hear some of their stories, and it just kind of stuck. And that's kind of where the whole idea came from. So in this in this sci-fi adventure, these two brothers, tell us about why they're against each other. One of them, Ryuho, and the other one is named Lino. Uh, Ryuho was banished by his father at age nine. And his father is the viceroy of the Pacific Territory, so he grew up in privilege. Um, but his father van- banished him to live in poverty in the echelons. And so Ryuho has never forgiven his brother Lino for, I guess, losing the respect of his father, having a horrible life, and living in poverty. You know, while Lino lived it up in the city, which only citizens can live in, and had this brilliant life. So the two brothers are opposite each other, and Ryuho, as much as he hates his father, still wants that privilege and the power. You know, Lino is a prince, and he is the son of the Viceroy, and so we're going to see him in a later book become the sub-Viceroy himself, and so that's a position of power. Ryuo, he is he. They want to train him as a psychic assassin. Right. So he gets captured by the government organization called the Psy Faction, and they experiment on him and brainwash him and turn him into a psychic assassin, pretty much. And he actually is sent on a mission to kill an ambassador from another country. And another high-tech side of this story is that you have some kind of uh, biometric port uh, installed at the temple, and there's uh, some kind of communications that a psychic can have with a computer. Right. So it's called a jack, and it allows you to, quote-unquote, jack into a computer, and your brain, it interprets the uh, electrical signals in your brain, and so, you know, people can, when they're jacked in, talk directly to a computer. Um, they, the jacks are nanomachine ports that allow those signals to get interpreted so that, you know, you don't have to type on a keyboard. You can actually mentally sync your thoughts and that will get the computer to do whatever it needs to do. If that's hacking into a government system or designing, you know, uh, an airplane or an aircraft. So it and or doing computations. So there are the good hackers and the bad hackers. Uh, well, that's that's kind of as it is today. There are good hackers and bad hackers. Good hackers could be called uh, security professionals working for high-tech companies to make sure that your systems are secure. So we have that today. Um, so this is just an extrapolation of that out to 2055 in the future. And this is all about power and control. Uh, pretty much who who is sitting in a place of power and what they decide to do and, you know, where is their overreach and what is right and what is wrong. So the government would think that the hackers are evil, if you want to call it that, but the hackers themselves would call themselves freedom fighters. So it depends on where you're sitting, you know, what your position is. 
And there are themes, for example, government oppression, discrimination, and censorship, uh, which you believe are wrong uh, throughout the story. Uh, Yeah, they are throughout the story. But, you know, one thing that I do, and I've had reviewers comment on it, and I've gotten very good reviews, is that I don't take sides. You know, it's up to the reader to decide, you know, who's right and who's wrong. If you want to be on the side of the government who say the hackers are cyber terrorists or you want to be on the side of the hackers who say they're freedom fighters you know it's all a matter of perspective and we also have super soldiers in the story correct you have the atlantia federation which dropped the nuclear bomb on the pacific territories um have a set of psychic soldiers called the jani that are basically killing machines and so they, these super soldiers, have been had their DNA manipulated. Yes, they did. And so basically they will follow the orders of the military for the Atlantia Federation and kill anything that's in front of them, pretty much. Well, information security, I think we all realize how important that is today. Uh, we're, we're constantly uh, see the news where someone is... Uh, some criminals or criminals have hacked into not only companies but uh, general uh, pop- the general population. So, uh, f- is that where you see us going with the high tech world? With all your background, I mean, it gets more and more dangerous out there. Uh, every every day, there are attacks on companies and individual people. Um, anywhere from phishing attacks to you know, denial of service against corporate websites. I mean, it's all over the place. I mean, you've got uh, other countries involved. You've got individuals involved. You know, we live in a high-tech world, and as the technology increases, so do the ways to attack it. And the government is persecuting psychics in your story. So you have a theme of equality. That's that's uh, that spills over into your view of life. All right, I believe everyone should be equal, and you know we have things like the marriage equality initiatives in the U.S. right now. You know, and some other places like in Europe, they're a little bit more progressive than we are. So, you know, we're moving slowly there. You know, but there's still a ways to go. Tell us about some other characters that are important to your story. Uh, so, let's see. Uh, there, One of the characters is named Fade, and he is the leader of the Packrats, which is the group that Ryuho ends up joining and ends up uh, leading for a period of time. And uh, Fade basically starts... Uh, Haven for packers and psychics, giving them a place to call their own uh, free of government oppression. So even though the government calls him a terrorist, you know, he is basically helping the psychics who are, the government will send their zone police out on the street to round up psychics for experimentation. You know, you're not safe on any given day if you happen to be a psychic. So Fade was trying to start a safe haven for psychics where they could be themselves and be equal. 
Well, we won't tell the uh, ending of the story, but it is a battle, uh, you know, in this cyber revolution against the government, and there's all kinds of prolonged wars, and and the the brothers uh, eventually, obviously, one of them has to win. <laughs> one of them will eventually win. Right now, so this is Gridscan Beginnings, which is the very first book in the series, and there are four books total that are published, with one in production right now, which will be released... Uh, Hopefully by the end of this month, that book is Gridscan Tribute. And uh, the story continues. The beginnings is just the start. Just the start. Anything else which you'd like to share with us? Uh, so I think some of the technology, is, is one of the technology things that I have in the book are something called mobile frames. And so those are... Uh, war machines that the uh, psychics in the military actually can pilot. They can jack into their machine, um, which allows them to maneuver faster with the technology of the war machine. And the Atlantia Federation and the Pacific Territories use those machines in campaigns. And we'll see in some of the later books that, you know, the war escalates. Well, thank you so much, Natsua, for joining us on Ex Libris On Air. Tell us how to get your book. Uh, so you can get the books at exlibris.com and also on Amazon. Thanks again. Thank you. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.